Welcome to Christian Assembly, a family church. Since 1930, we've been serving the communities of Western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and West Virginia with the good news of Jesus Christ. With over 40 years of Bible teaching and ministry experience, Pastor Bill brings faith-filled revelation from God's Word. We believe with you, wherever you are, that God will inspire and change your life through the following teaching. For more information about Christian Assembly, follow us on social media or visit our website at cafamily.net. Praise God. We're going to continue our study uh, this morning. The title of the message is The End is Near. I began it on Wednesday evening talking about end times because many are asking the question, is COVID, you know, a precursor to the end times? Is it a sign of the end times? And, you know, we're endeavoring to answer that question and share some thoughts with you that will better help us understand exactly what's going on in our world today. Uh, but first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word together. And we do so in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us insight and understanding of all the things you would have us to learn and to know and conform us to the very image of Jesus and change us from glory to glory that we might become that for which he apprehended each and every one of us. We thank you for it. Receive it done in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Just a quick review, if you were not with us on Wednesday evening, uh, we pointed out certain things that would be beneficial and helpful to us. But even before I do that, let me just say this. We believe that when Jesus comes, he's coming for a glorious church without spot, without wrinkle. We believe he's going to manifest himself in a powerful way in these last days that we're living in. And the spirit of God is going to move upon the face of the earth like never before. And through signs, wonders and miracles that will take place, we believe that many will enter into the kingdom of God and give their hearts to Jesus. And so just let's. Remember that. We believe that that's going to happen. Uh, we talked about a research team that got together and they used scripture, history, science, and uh, astronomy. And what they wanted to do is to find out where we're at as far as the year is concerned from Adam till right now. And what they concluded is last March, we began year 6001. Now, if you go by the Jewish calendar, they say 5,780, somewhere around there. But this group, they said, no, we're 6,001. Uh, regardless, we know that we're near 6,000 years. Um, they believe because we're entering the 6,001 year that understanding the feasts of Israel, the Feast of Trumpet being next in uh, September, they actually believe that Jesus is going to come this fall feast. Of course, we've been taught that we don't set dates. Why? Because Jesus made it very clear that we don't set dates because no man knows the hour and no man knows the time. Look at uh, Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And so it's wrong to set dates. Now, am I saying that he couldn't come? Well, he obviously he can come. Uh, we believe he'll come during a fall feast because all the other feasts were fulfilled when Jesus was here upon this earth, and then he sent the Holy Ghost for number four on the day of Pentecost. So it's okay to believe that, but it doesn't mean it'll be this fall feast, but we are getting close. Next, we said we should plan as if he's not coming for a long time, but we should live as if he's coming tonight. Jesus really gave us those words, be ready, be watchful, and that's exactly the position we all should be taking. He might not come for a long time, so plan as if he's not. But live your life as if he were coming tonight. Then we talked about COVID-19. Uh, is it a sign? 
Well, not really. But is it a precursor? It sure enough can be. It kind of gives us an understanding as to how in the seven-year tribulation, we can see a one-world government. We can see the Antichrist doing his thing. We can see you've got to take the mark of the beast. You can't go and shop. You can't buy. You can't sell. And all those different things you cannot do unless you take that chip or mark of the beast, whatever it is, and have that implant. We can see just even like right now in a minor scale, let's just say, without a mask and so on. And so we can see that even though we live in the greatest country, the most powerful country, on the planet, one small germ can bring it to a halt. Isn't that something to consider? But we can see how that can happen. Now, we talked about certain things we should learn as far as what we've been going through with COVID-19, and that is this, certain lessons. Number one, everyone is vulnerable. Each and every one of us. doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, where you come from, your race, your ethnicity. doesn't matter which uh, your gender is, if you're rich, if you're poor, whoever, if you're a coach, if you're a ball player, whatever, no one's exempt. Everyone's vulnerable. The storms of life come to each and every one of us, and we know that. Second lesson that we learn is that the uncertainty of life is a reality. Who would ever thought we're doing what we're doing? Who would ever thought you couldn't go to a funeral or a wedding or a ball game or anything of that nature? But that's the life that we're living right now. And we understand that James said it. It's about a vapor. appears for a little while, vanishes away. So the reality is this. Eternally. We live on earth. We live temporarily and that's all there is to it. And so we have uncertainty of life. Our dependence of God on God is number three. Obviously, we've got to depend on him more than anything and anyone else, no matter what man can do. And we see that man is limited. That's what he can do. We need to turn to God and expect to receive from him what we need. Next, we said that salvation is what's really most important. If anything, it should heighten our awareness to the fact that we all need saved. Every one of us needs to be right with God. Because should he come tomorrow? Should he come the next day? You don't want to enter into the tribulation period, I guarantee it. Because this is nothing compared to that. It's child's play compared to what will take place during the tribulation period. And then, of course, we said that humility is what's required. If we want to be lifted up as a nation, as a people, humble yourself and pray. Seek my face, he said, and turn from your ways that are wicked. I will hear from heaven, forgive your sin, and I will cleanse your land. And so once again, we should humble ourselves before God, recognizing once again, one small, minor little thing can bring a nation to its knees. So let's not forget that. And then, of course, there's some other signs that we added to it, like the Son of the temple, the blueprints have been drawn up for the temple. And also, we know that the red heifer has been discovered, at least still kosher right now. But as we pick up our study, I want to talk about some of the other signs of the end times. This is just a, like a quick review here, this first one. But Jesus, we know, could not come before the restoration of Israel. That's a fact. If you go back to the um, Spanish flu that took place in 1918, that took I think over 50 million lives worldwide. You still couldn't say during that time, well, it must be that Jesus is going to come. Why? Because the restitution of all things had not yet happened. The restoration of Israel had not happened. See, when look, look in, in the Acts chapter 1, verse 6, you'll notice how the disciples of our Lord were concerned about this. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel. They're looking for a natural kingdom. But then look at chapter 3 and verses 19 through 21. 
Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things which God had spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. So restitution means to restore, to give back something that was taken or something that was lost. And what happened to Israel in AD 70? They lost everything. It was all taken from them. They left their homeland. They scattered throughout the world. And so you see, Jesus couldn't come back until there was the restoration of Israel. So let's talk about that just for a moment. Has Israel been restored? 1948, they became a nation, May 14th. They were restored as a nation. And then in 1967, Jerusalem became the capital after the war that took place in 1967. Thirdly, in 1989, the Jews began coming home from the northern country and then north, south, east, and west, all regions round about. They began migrating back home to their homeland. So that's restoration number three. And then after that, in 1992, the latter rains. We talked about the latter rains. Yes, there's the spiritual latter rain, but there's also the natural latter rain in Israel. And what took place, they did some cloud busting. And in 1992, they experienced what is called the latter rain. And then in the year 2000, we see something else happening. The desert blossoms as a rose. Isaiah 35 and verse 1, an underground stream that they found out of water supply. And the desert began to blossom as a rose. So you can see this, these five events have taken place. And Israel has been restored as a nation once again. And all these things basically have happened in our lifetime. Again, the temple is ready to be built. All the high priestly garb and all the robes and all that. And they're even training people, the priest, how to offer sacrifices once again. So we can see by some of these things, number one, the restoration of Israel, that the end is near. But number two, let's talk about just for a little bit God's 7,000 year plan for man. In the book of Isaiah 46, look at verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, now notice the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Notice he says he declares the end from the beginning. What does that tell us? If we can go back to the beginning in the book of Genesis and find some information out there that can explain to us some things about the end. Because what does he do? The end is seen in the beginning. Well, look in first P, uh, Second Peter, rather, chapter 3, uh, and let's look at some of these things. But, beloved, this is verse 8 and 9. Be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So notice how he makes this very clear to us that one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day to God. There is no time with God. But if you go back to the book of Genesis and you see that there were seven days of creation, six days God worked, the seventh day he rested. Six is the number of man. That's when he was created. Seven is the number for God. Look at another verse in uh, the book of Psalms, Psalms 90. Because we believe that Peter probably picked up on this. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. 
Then go on down to verses 11 and 12. Who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And if you recall, you know, way back when in Genesis chapter 6, when the Lord spoke to Noah about the man's years would be 120. Um, many think, believe, we could say a law of double reference, that it was 100 years that man would live upon the earth because we saw the lifespan of man being reduced to probably 120 years. But also, there are those that declare that those 120 years are jubilee years, which really translate into 6,000 years. So in other words, God's plan for man is going to be wrapped up in 6,000 years. And in the seventh day, that seven, seven, you know, 1,000 year period, God's going to be here on the earth with us in the person of our Lord who's going to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, many believe that the universe is divided up into seven 1,000 year periods called millennia. Millennia, it's believed, uh, once again, let's, let's read that. No, it's chapter 6 and verse 3. It's 6,000 years that God would deal with man, and he wouldn't strive with man any longer after that. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for, the, for that he is also flesh. Yet his days shall be 120 years. And as I said, many believe those are jubilee years, which translates into 6,000 years. So... As we approach 6,000 years, or if we're beginning to enter into 6,000 years, it seems like God's going to wrap things up when there's dealings with man after 6,000 years, and then Christ comes in his millennial reign for the last 1,000 years. Now, there's a parallel between natural things and spiritual things that took place way back in the beginning in the book of Genesis compared to things that have taken place in Christ since then. I want to make a comparison. For example, let's go to day one. And this is like the first thousand years. You can say, what's the thing we highlight in the first thousand years? Well, first of all, in day one, darkness and light separate. That's in the natural. But what takes place in the supernatural? Well, we know that light and darkness separated when Adam sinned against God. And in the first thousand years, you can say that was the main thing that we focus on. That's what's highlighted. Day two, the waters were separated above and beneath. Of course, during that time, we understand Noah's flood, where the waters came together above and beneath. And of course, the flood took the lives of all the people except Noah and his family. Day three, plant-yielding seeds are created and made by God. And also, in that third millennia what happens is abraham comes along and abraham's seed is going to provide the blessing for all the nations of the world so we see a parallel there day four there's light in heaven the brighter the lesser and the greater light the moon and the sun and the stars and so on but on the earth what do we have the prophets are sent during that particular time and then jesus christ the light of the world he comes to the earth to give us the light that we need uh, day five, living creatures are made from the dust of the earth. And when Jesus arises from the dust of the earth, what happens? He makes it possible for us to become new creatures in him. Day six, man is given dominion over all the works of God's hands in, in the beginning. And what happens on the earth? Jesus gives that dominion back to man because of his work of redemption. And then, of course, day seven, God rests. And on earth, day seven Jesus comes and the earth rests as he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. 
So when we consider the fact that the number six is the number for man, and the number seven is the number for God, there's a strong possibility that God has revealed the end from the beginning if we just look at it that way. Once again, never be dogmatic about any of these things when it comes to uh, these things. There's all kinds of opinions. I remember when I was at school, one of my teachers just said anytime he ever tried to wade out into the book of Revelation, you know what happened to him? He drowned because he was wrong over the years. As they went by, he saw some of the things that he saw was, was just wrong. Now, when we consider also Israel's seven feast days, remember this. Those seven feast days talk about God's redemptive plan. Seven is the number for God. And we see his plan unfolding in these seven feast days. When we go to the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, we understand that there's seven ages of the church. Those seven churches in Asia Minor constitute the seven different phases or ages of the church. It was a mail route that took place where the letters that were written uh, were sent to the churches. John sent those letters to the churches and they read those churches aloud. Uh, before all the, the letters allowed before all the church people. But we're living in that last time, the last Laodicean church age in Revelation chapter 3. Uh, once again, we see after that comes Daniel's 70th week or his seven years of tribulation. So when you put all this together, you just get somewhat of an understanding that, look, we are living in the last of the last days. And it's amazing to think that we could be the generation that could possibly be raptured out of here and be with the Lord forever and come back with him and reign with him on the earth. But once again, we're not dogmatic. Number three. So after the seven thousand years of God dealing with man, which is coming to a close, the day of the Gentiles is going to end. What about the moral decline that's taken place in mankind? In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul the Apostle by the Spirit of God kind of give us, he gave us an insight as to what's going to take place. So let's look at these verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded. Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. In other words, there'll be a time when people will be involved in all these things. Even people that sometimes come to Christ and are just nothing but full of carnality. And they deny the power to change a human life. God came into us to recreate our spirits, to give us a brand new life on the inside so it can manifest on the outside. And yet we see all those things prevailing in the world here today around us. Moral decline is taking place like we've never seen before. Who would ever think that there'd be a time they wouldn't know whether you're a male or a female? We're living in those days right now. The next one, number four, there's increase of skepticism when it comes to when's he coming back again? And we see people mocking that. Look at Second Peter. We read this already, uh, this verses 8 and 9. But look at verses 1 through 7. And here we have Peter. Once again, inspired, and here's what he writes. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this, first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly, or they willingly are unaware of the fact that, or ignorant of the fact that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved in the fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So, once again, we see a lot of people today mocking Christians, mocking Christianity, scoffing at the fact or the idea that Christ is really coming back again. Look, he came the first time, he's coming back again. He came as an infant. He's coming as a ruling king. He's going to come again, but he's waiting for people to get saved. And when that last Gentile comes into the family of God, the rapture will take place. And we're out of here to be with him forever. The next one, and uh, this is something that is important to all of us because we see it happening in our day. The increase of worldwide terrorism. Worldwide terrorism. Look at Luke 21. In verses 25 to 28, there shall be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. So here we see in our day, terrorism like we've never seen before. Planes flying into buildings, bombs going off everywhere, and the list goes on. All kinds of uh, mail laced with uh, things that can destroy human lives. So once again, we see we're living at a time right now when these are the beginning of those things that he is talking about. And we have to remember this too. Those things that he's mainly talking about will take place in the tribulation period. Before that time, we have the precursor, in other words, the forerunner of those things. But the reality of those things will take place during the seven-year tribulation. Now, next we have the 200 million man army, which has to be a sign as a result of the fact that during the time that it was written, there weren't 200 million people living on the earth. But look in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 16 and see what it says. And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000 or 200 million. And I heard the number of them. That can come to pass now because you just go to certain countries alone. China, for example, they have billions of people. There's 8 billion people living upon the planet. So 200 million, that's a reality. And when they all join together against the, the Christ at Jerusalem, without a doubt, they can gather that amount of people. So, yes, it can happen because of that. And then, number seven, the increase of knowledge and travel that Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 4. See what it says. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro. That's travel. And knowledge shall be increased. So, if you just think about when it comes to knowledge, and you think about when it comes to travel, think about the advances that have taken place way back from the beginning. So just in travel, you begin to walk. That's what you used. Then you, maybe there was a horse. Then the wheel was invented. Then you rode a, in a car. And it goes all the way to the space age of today. You talk about the advances when it comes to travel. You can travel around the country getting on a plane and so on. And so we see those advances that have already come and taken place. When it comes to communication, you know, you talk. You've got smoke screens. You, you smoke signals, rather. You've got... Um, telegraph and it goes on from telephones look at our telephones today and all the things that we can do with a telephone who would think you could have a computer basically the internet on your telephone 
and so much more that you can do. Well, today we're living in an age of we got such technology, for example, satellite technology that you can be walking with your cell phone and you can look at things happening around the world. Let me show you something in Revelation um, chapter 11 that really will help us better understand how this will take place. And I will give unto my two witnesses, and we believe they're Enoch and Elijah. Could be someone else, but we think that because those were the two that were translocated. And they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days, sackcloth, uh, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. This is talking about the first half of the tribulation period. And if any man will hurt them, Listen to this carefully. Fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood. Wow. And to smite the earth with plagues as often as they will. And when they shall have finished their testimony, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. And shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put in graves. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them and make merry. And shall send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets tormented them that dwell on the earth. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet and great fear fell upon them which saw them. And they heard a great voice from heaven saying... Unto them, come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Wow. Imagine that. Satellite technology makes this possible. Because of it, all those things we just read there are going to be seen by everyone around the world. Imagine. First of all, the first three and a half years, what do we see? Once again, it's not going to be a picnic. It's believed that as they defend Jerusalem, as they defend the temple, and we can see there could be warfare there, these are invincible. Fire out of their mouth, calling down plagues upon the people, turning water, the water supply into blood because they took the blood of the prophets and so on. So in the first three and a half years of tribulation, it may be peaceful in a sense that the Antichrist produces a false peace, but it's not going to be that peaceful. And so it's important that we understand that first three and a half years, some things are going to be happening like droughts and, and fire falling and consuming people's lives and so on will be taking place during that particular time. And then when the Antichrist is finally given power over these two and takes their lives, they'll be seen because of satellite technology on the ground, three and a half days dead and their bodies not buried. But then they will see them resurrected from the dead. Can you imagine the scene of it? How is this going to take place? Satellite technology, iPhones, 
You can see it all around the world. An amazing thing. Now, as we continue our study, I want to show some support for a pre-trib rapture. I know not everybody embraces this, but honestly, I don't see how you can see it any other way. Number one, God doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. Look at Genesis chapter 18 and verse 23. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, there's some righteous that are there. You're going to take them all? You're going to kill them all? And the Lord says, no. He'll spare it for how many? Even ten righteous he would. But the point being, God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. Number two, Christians are not appointed to wrath. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9. The tribulation period is the judgment of God, the wrath of God being poured out upon the world. For God has not appointed us to wrath or judgment, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And look at Romans chapter 5. Also, but God commended his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. How are we going to get saved from that wrath? Through him. And how is that? The rapture. See, the last, those seven years of Daniel's prophecy, those seven years, that's the judgment of God, the vengeance of God poured out upon the earth, and in particular even the Jewish people, because they rejected their Messiah. Number three, of course, we use this all the time, but some people think that John Darby came up with it. Uh, he didn't really come up with it. It didn't originate with him, but let's read it, because it's the Apostle Paul by the Holy Ghost who said it. Look at verse 13 through 18, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is our foundation for the rapture of the church. Paul taught this. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall... Not prevent or go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. With the voice of the archangel. With the trump of God. The trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall and remain. Shall be caught up. Raptured up together. With them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we be. We ever be with the Lord. Now notice. Wherefore comfort one another with these words. You talk about comfort. When you understand the seven years of tribulation. And it's ahead of us. You're comforted to know that you'll be out of here. If you had to go through it, that wouldn't be a word of comfort whatsoever. But John Darby may have popularized it in the 1830s, but he did not originate it. Here, it came from the Apostle Paul as taught by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Okay, number five. The words come up hither. Look at Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. In chapters 2 and 3, we have the seven ages of the church. We have John being spoken to by Jesus to say, write this to this church. Write this to that church. And he goes to the whole list of churches. And we're in the last one right now, the Laodicean church, which is generation Z. Here's what chapter 4 and verse 1 says, though. After this I looked, that is, after addressing the churches I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. We believe that right there is the rapture of the church. 
where the church is taken out and it's not mentioned from chapter 3, right here, chapter 4, verse 1, until the 19th chapter. All in between is not talking about the church at all. It's talking about Israel. It's talking about the wrath of God upon the world. So, we've not been appointed to wrath. We're going to get raptured out of here. And thank God, we're not going to have to be concerned about any of that. Next, number six. And here's where people get confused, the last trumpet. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, notice the expression, the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. People will use that expression, the last trump, and think he's talking about the last trump in Revelation. But Paul is not talking about a trumpet of judgment at all. No. You see, it's not the last trumpet like in Revelation. It's not the trumpet of judgment or wrath or vengeance. It's the trumpet that raptures the church out of here when the high priest would uh, blow the trumpet or sound the shofar. What he would do was continue to blow it until people came off the harvest field into the temple or into the place where they would worship God. Well, when he said the last trumpet, if you understand this, it would mean the last time he blows the sound of the trumpet or the shofar. And during that time, many believe that they blew the shofar 101 times. I guess 101 would be the last trumpet, not the trumpet of Revelation. Just like seven times around Jericho, the seven time, seven days on the seventh time, the seventh time, the seventh day, that's the end of it. That's the last one. It doesn't mean that's the last forever. And just like the trumpet, the trumpet was blown. Look at Isaiah chapter 27, verse 13. You'll see this. It shall come to pass in that day that the great trumpet shall be blown and they shall come uh, which were ready to, to perish in the land of Assyria and the outcasts in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. You see, the last trump is not the trumpet of judgment. The last trump, if anything, would be the trump of God, where they're all called to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, their God. You could say that's the last trump. But let's not confuse trumpet just because it's used in different ways. These two are not the same. Paul's trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15 is the rapture. And Revelation's trumpet is the trumpet of judgment and the wrath of God. So these are some of the things that will help us better understand the fact that we're living in the last of the last days. We're embarking upon what we believe the rapture of the church. We believe the next event will be when Jesus comes as the high priest, he sounds the shofar, and when he sounds the shofar, all of a sudden the church age ends. We are raptured up out of here. We meet him in the sky with our loved ones. We're changed. We put on a glorified body. And then we make our way into heaven where we're going to spend seven years with him experiencing the marriage supper of the Lamb. As a matter of fact, two things take place simultaneously. Well, can God do that? Well, I believe he can. We have the lamb with us in heaven, and we have the marriage supper of the lamb. But we have the wrath of the lamb on earth. When all these plagues and all these vows are open, and the trumpets are sound, the trumpet of wrath 
and of judgment upon the earth. So if you can see that in heaven, we're having a wonderful time. We're eating and celebrating the Lord's marriage supper. Guess what? Would you rather be eating or be eaten? Because you see on earth, when this takes place, there are so many carcasses here upon the earth that we're told that the fowls of the air will come and eat up of their flesh. I know about you. I'd rather be there in glory with my Lord, experiencing a wonderful supper with him and not have my flesh eaten because I've rejected him. You know, before I close, once again, I know this is diff very difficult even to say or even to understand. But during that particular time when Satan is bound for 1,000 years after this tribulation period, he's bound for 1,000 years, then he's loose for a season. And you can read this in Revelation chapter 20. He's going to come, he's going to collect a group of people so much and so many that the Bible says it's like the sand along the seashore. And they're going to band together and they're going to march on and siege Jerusalem to try to overthrow Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Can you imagine living with Jesus for a thousand years under his leadership, his loving kindness, his tender mercies, making all things well, no sickness, no disease, Satan's bound, no contamination from his bunch on the earth. Just a beautiful time for 1,000 years, yet because these people are forced to serve him, I don't believe there's going to be free moral agency as far as their choice at that particular time. They're going to have to serve him. They're not going to die in the tribulation period. They're going to pray that the rocks would kill them, but they won't die because they're going to be under his rulership for 1,000 years, and they're going to live that whole time. But now Satan comes along and gets all these people to attack Jesus. And of course, once again, Jesus wins. You wonder when the enemy is ever going to see it. But Jesus wins at that time. But my question is this. How can you live for Jesus for 1,000 years with him and still rebel? You know, in Revelation, it also says this. When fire comes down and consumes the people, they still won't repent. They won't repent. How wicked is the heart of man? Hard to imagine. But beloved, let's close with this. We're not called to wrath. God does not want to judge us. Our judgment began before all this. And he took us out of here. Now, if you're left behind and you understand the rapture took place and there you are knowing you've got to make a decision to take the mark of the beast or not in that seven year period. If you do, you'll suffer the wrath of God. If you don't, You'll suffer the wrath of the Antichrist, and he'll, be, he'll probably martyr you. But the thing is this. You're an eternal spirit being, and so am I. And the question is, where do we want to spend our eternity? Once again, there's a lot here. I pray you didn't get confused. We're going to continue this again, kind of put other things together. But why am I saying this? Because we're living at a time that's unprecedented. It's time to wake up, church. And recognize that, look, one germ can destroy a nation. One germ can bring us to our knees. Imagine that. How humble we should be. How dependent we should be on the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The life we're living right now is not what we've lived for many, many years in this land. But you know what? This is but a vapor. The time is coming. We're going to be with him in glory. Let's do our best to humble ourselves. 
seek his face, turn from ways that displease him, and look to him to bring healing to our land. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we all have to live upon this earth and be shining lights in a world of darkness and holding forth the word of life to the generation that you've called us to. And indeed, if this is generation Z, then hmm, we know the end is near. And so, Father, once again, we just lay our lives down at the foot of the cross, looking to Jesus to continue by his spirit to transform us from glory to glory. May we ever rise up and never be negligent with regard to our own personal growth and development in you. May we all be motivated, dear Father, to walk in love and live by faith and extend mercy to those around us. Father, we just thank you for this time that we're living in, knowing that you're greater than whatever it is we experience in this life. And Father, we count it all joy to be a part of doing what is necessary to see to it that the body of Christ rises up again with great power and might to carry out your will. Be glorified in each life in Jesus' name. Amen.